the dialectical rise of a white nationalist state by Michael T. Part 4, The Counter-Revolutionary War and the Rise of the White Nationalist State. Quote, around 1776, certain important people in the English colonies made a discovery that would prove enormously useful for the next 200 years. They found that by creating a nation, a symbol, a legal unity called the United States, they could take over land, profits, and political power from favorites of the British Empire. In the process, they could hold back a number of potential rebellions and create a consensus of popular support for the rule of a new, privileged leadership. End quote. Howard Zinn. Quote, Suppressing African resistance became a crucial component of forging settler unity and the solidifying identity that was whiteness, which cut prodigiously across religious, ethnic, class, and gender lines. The forging of settler unity and the congealing identity that was whiteness also consolidated the developing connection between settlers' fear of alleged British enslavement, their own possession of Africans as chattel, and the fear that the relationship between the master and slave could be reversed to their crushing detriment. Unquote. Gerald Horn. The Unilateral Declaration of Independence, UDI, was the colonial leader's response to the Royal Proclamation of 1763. In 1774, Thomas Jefferson, slave owner and soon to be third president of the slaveocracy, condemned the crown for restricting the settlers' right to migrate across the boundaries drawn by the proclamation, among other things. In his 1774 summary of a view of the rights of British America, he argued that modern societies, like ancient ones, were based on the pursuit of private property. Quote, for Jefferson, the ability to migrate wasn't just an excuse of natural rights, but the source of rights, or at least their historically necessary condition. Liberty was made possible by the right to colonize, letting free men, when their freedom was threatened, move on to find free land and carry the torch from one place to another. Quote, our Saxton ancestors, Jefferson wrote, left their native wilds and woods in the north of England of Europe and quote, possessed themselves of the island of Britain. As they did so, no German prince presumed to claim superiority over them. By that law then, did the crown presume to claim superiority over colonists to settle the wilds of America? End quote. Of course, the, quote, wilds of America were indigenous communities. With that view, Settler-organized rangers did not hesitate to employ extreme violence, 
even against non-combatants. John Murray, the fourth Earl of Dunmore, governor of Virginia and land speculator, commissioned 150 rangers to destroy whole towns inhabited by the Shawnee Nation. He also ordered the Virginia militia to invade the Ohio Valley and raise indigenous communities. No effort was to be spared. Quote, during the Lord Dunmore's War, Shawnees and other indigenous people in what the Anglo-Separatists would call the Northwest Territory realized that they were in a life-or-death struggle with these murdering bands of settlers who were led by a wealthy land speculator intent on destroying their nation and wiping them from the face of the earth. This realization led to another recurrent factor in the onslaught of European colonial ventures, the appearance of an accommodationalist faction within the Shawnee Nation that accepted a humiliating peace agreement. Dunmore demanded all of the Shawnee hunting grounds and what would later become following U.S. independence, the state of Kentucky. This was the beginning of a three-decade war against the Shawnees and their allies. That alliance was eventually led in its resistance by the great Tecumseh, who had grown up in the midst of an unrelenting warfare against his people, along with his brother, Tense Watagua, also known as the prophet and the movement's spiritual leader, end quote. Quote, we, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Declaration of Independence. Quote, the key players in the 1776 UDI were almost without exception major slave owners and traders. For instance, John Hancock was Boston's largest slaveholder, perhaps the real reason for his ostentatiously large signature on the Declaration. Copious correspondence demonstrates that the Yankee and Southern oligarchs knew that Britain was being forced to abolish slavery. That would have been financial ruin for the merchants and plantation owners, end quote. Nevertheless, no more than a third of the British colonial population supported a war against England. 
most viewed the Crown's surrogate colonial leaders as their immediate political enemies. For the low and middle income subjects of the colonies had become replications of old world tyrannies with the wealthy constantly increasing their wealth and power at the expense of the laboring classes. The social contradictions had become so antagonistic that they had resulted in at least 18 rebellions against the colonial rulers before 1776. Thus, in order to survive, the separatist leaders were compelled to redirect this animosity toward the mother country. However, this strategy was mostly unsuccessful with the indigenous and African populations. Quote, about 20,000 enslaved Africans joined the Redcoats, roughly the same as the number of European loyalists who joined British regiments. This does not account for free Negroes who acted similarly. Among the latter was Benjamin Whitcliffe, a free Negro from Long Island who joined the Redcoats early on and spied for nearly two years before the rebels caught him and hung him. British troops arrived minutes after the rope was tightened, cut him down and saved his life. He was joined in his pro-London crusade by an unnamed Negro who participated in a plot to kill George Washington." Quote. By the time of the War of Independence, Settlers had invaded and squatted on much of the land occupied by the Haudenosaunee, also known as the Six Nation Iroquois. By this time, both the British and the settlers realized that winning over the tribe was a critical factor in winning the war. Thus, representatives from both sides were sent to Haudenosaunee councils in order to enlist their support. Complicating the effort was the fact that within the Six Nation Confederacy, there were differences as to how to respond to the war based on their respective experiences with the combatants. The Mohawks decided to ally with the British. The Senecas initially considered the British to be their arch enemies, but with the advent of the war, they allied with the crown. The Cayuga, Tuscarora, and Onondaga remained neutral. Only the Onidas allied with the separatists. Quote, in response to the decisions by five of the Iroquois nations, General George Washington wrote instructions to Major General John Sullivan to take preemptory action against the Haudenosaunee, quote, to lay waste all the settlements around, that the country may not be merely overrun but destroyed. You will not by any means listen to any overture of peace before the total ruin of their settlements is effected. Our future security will be in their inability to injure us and in the terror with which the severity of the chastisement they receive will inspire them, end quote. Sullivan replied, quote, the Indians shall see that there is malice enough in our hearts to destroy everything that contributes to their support, end quote. Quote, 
The British withdrew from the fight to maintain their 13 colonies in 1783 in order to redirect their resources to the conquests of South Asia. The British East India Company had been operating in the subcontinent since 1600 in a project parallel to Britain's colonization of the North American Atlantic coast. Britain's transfer to the United States of its claims to the Ohio country spelled a nightmarish disaster for all indigenous peoples east of the Mississippi. In negotiations to end the war, Britain did not insist on consideration for the indigenous nations that resisted the settlers' war of secession. In the resulting 1783 Treaty of Paris, the Crown transferred to the United States ownership of all its territory south of the Great Lakes, from the Mississippi to the Atlantic, and north of Spanish-occupied Florida." Unquote. Thomas Paine is often celebrated as the singular embodiment of whatever democratic motivations the separatists had for breaking away from the British crown. Much of this can be attributed to the strident rhetoric of human rights he employed in his pamphlets, Common Sense and Agrarian Justice. What he omitted in those tracts, however, reveal in many ways what he really thought. Although Paine wrote that everyone had an equal and divine right to land ownership, for instance, he downplayed those issues until 1797, 10 years after the conclusion of the first Congressional Congress. In common sense, he identified both patriarchy and white supremacy in no uncertain terms as gross social contradictions, but thought they were not urgent concerns in post-independence America. For Paine, those social divisions were rooted in nature, transcending the revolutionary reach of the new republic. In common sense, Paine accused Negroes and Indians of being mindless pawns of the British. Quote, the war effort exasperated already simmering tensions between elite patriots and those below them. In British tradition, the American elite expected the lower classes to fight their wars. During the revolution, General Washington stated that only, quote, the lower class of people should serve as foot soldiers. As early as 1775, landless tenants in Loudoun County, Virginia, voiced a complaint that was common across the sprawling colony. There was no inducement for the poor man to fight, for he had nothing to defend. Many poor white men rebelled against recruitment strategies, protested the exemptions given to the overseers and rich planters, and were disappointed with the paltry pay. In 1780, Virginia assemblymen agreed to grant white enlistees the bounty of a slave as payment for their willingness to serve until the end of the war. There were other attempts to mollify poor white farmers. In drafting a new constitution in 1776, 
Virginia rebels embrace freehold suffrage. Adult white men who were 21 and who had a freehold of 25 acres of cultivated land were awarded the right to vote. Yet the same revolutionaries were stingy when it came to redressing landlessness and poverty. Jefferson's proposal to lift up the bottom ranks, granting men without any land of their own, 50 acres and a vote was dropped from the final version of the Constitution, end quote. Preceding the writing of the Constitution, the Continental Congress established the Northwest Ordinance. The first law written by the New Republic was another revelation of the intentions for going to war against the crown. The ordinance was a blueprint for seizing the British protected indigenous occupied lands west of the Alleghenies and Appalachia. Most indigenous historians and others assert that the war for independence was the most extensive and destructive war initiated by the ruling classes in U.S. history. Whereas most American wars affected a relatively few nations, the war for independence affected and decimated hundreds of indigenous nations east of the Mississippi River. Quote, the inferior position of blacks, wrote Zinn, the exclusion of Indians from the new society, the establishment of supremacy for the rich and powerful in the new nation, all this was already settled in the colonies by the time of the revolution. With the English out of the way, it could now be put on paper, solidified, regularized, made legitimate by the Constitution of the United States, and drafted at a convention of revolutionary leaders in Philadelphia, end quote. It is impossible to overstate the effect chattel slavery has had on the establishment of the USA. Slave owners and those beholding to their interests controlled the presidency from Washington to Buchanan, a period of 60 years. The Speaker of the House of Representatives for over 40 years. The all-powerful House Ways and Means Committee for the first 42 years. The decision to give congressional representation based on population size was primarily to allow southern states to count their slaves in spite of the fact that the enslaved had no voting rights. The infamous three-fifths compromise. Each enslaved person represents three-fifths of a vote is how the Congress resolved the political contradiction. After independence, the victorious social forces solidified their hold on the governing bodies. Whatever freedoms and liberties they had promised for the lower classes before the war, fell by the wayside. Their focus now shifted to protecting the collective interests of the slave owners, bankers, and merchants, making sure that political and economic power remained in the hands of white men of means. This was called democracy. Quote, the Naturalization Act of 1790 was a law of the United States Congress that set the first uniform rules for the granting 
of United States citizenship by naturalization. The law limited naturalization to, quote, free white persons of good character, thus excluding Native Americans, indentured servants, slaves, free black people, and later Asians, end quote. You are listening to 106.5 WFMP. This is Community Control Now, part four of the dialectical rise of the white nationalist state. Postscript coming right up. Postscript. Quote, laws and policies were fundamental to racializing the colonies and the nation, establishing and fortifying the primacy of whites. Laws and policies associated with populations defined as racial groups and boundaries between them fixed exactly who was enslaved, who was free, and who was native. Over time, every pregnant woman and every baby born was racialized, marked for inclusion or exclusion, unquote. Quote, racist actions and policies in the past have determined the number of people in particular communities of color living today in the United States. The breeding of slaves, the killing of Native Americans, the restrictions on Asian immigration, all determine how many people of color are currently in this country. Human dignity and opportunity are not measured in quantities of people. Relatively small population groups, such as Native Americans, often deserve large amounts of retribution." A major development in the formation of the United States as a nation was the seizure of half of the sovereign nation of Mexico through war and the carving up of that conquest into states within the Southwest. This expansion enabled the U.S. to reach the Pacific Ocean and thus open up valuable trade with Asia. After buying Alaska from Russia, the colonization and incorporation of the chain of islands in the Pacific called Hawaii completed the consolidation of the United States of America. Quote, the Anglo-Saxon march of civilization in the West was accomplished through a mix of legal and extra-legal measures. In 1850, the state of California used a foreign miners tax to drive Chinese and Mexican miners out of precious metals mining. A few years later, the California legislature passed an anti-Mexican vagrancy law, a.k.a. the Greaser Act. After the financial panic of 1819, many people feared mass social disorder in the U.S. There was talk of treason on the part of poor settlers, similar to what was said during Shays' Rebellion in 1786. Consequently, as Eisenberg writes, quote, the federal government devised a program of regulated land sales that kept prices high enough to weed out the lowest classes. Cornerstone speech, March 21st, 1861. Our new government is founded upon exactly this idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests 
upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. Unquote. Alexander Stevens, Vice President of the Confederate States of America. Quote, In the ears of the world, Abraham Lincoln, on the 1st of January, 1863, declared four million slaves thenceforth and forever freed. The truth was less than this. The Emancipation Proclamation applied only to the slaves of those states or parts of states still in rebellion against the U.S. government. Hundreds of thousands of such slaves were already free by their own action and that of the invading armies. Lincoln's proclamation only added possible legal sanction to an accomplished fact. End quote. The Civil War, which officially began in 1861, can easily be viewed as a replay of the Counter-Revolutionary War of 1776. Between the two conflicts, a white nationalist state, built primarily on chattel slavery and seizure of land and genocide of indigenous populations, gradually split into two hostile polities. This political fissure had become, by the 1850s, irrepressible, irreconcilable, and inextricably related to several key contradictions. One, slave labor and its allies versus slave owners and their allies. And two, the further westward expansion of chattel slavery versus the free soil movement. As Du Bois elucidates, even on the eve of the Civil War, the multicultural abolitionist movement was a relatively minor political movement in the U.S. However, once the war began and the Confederates won many of the early major battles, abolition became a central issue. As much as Lincoln and the political forces he represented had tried to win the war without emancipating the enslaved, the intransigence of the Confederates forced them to do so as an indispensable war strategy. Lincoln could not, quote, save the Union, unquote, without emancipation and encouraging blacks, both nominally free and enslaved, to enlist in the Union armies. Quote, labor in white skin cannot emancipate itself, where in black skin it is branded. End quote. Karl Marx. Meanwhile, the war of dispossession and genocide against the indigenes continued unabated. The longest war waged by the U.S. state was the war against the Apache Nation from 1850 to 1886, when the U.S. seized half of Mexico with the end of the Mexican-American War, it included land occupied by the Apaches and the Navajos. 
The subsequent Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo stipulated that both the U.S. and Mexican governments were required to finally end all resistance of these indigenous people. In 1877, most of the latter had been driven into inhospitable desert reservations. Nevertheless, an Apache warrior named Goliathli, also known as Geronimo, led the resistance to forcing his people into Carlos Reservation located in Arizona. Though never actually captured, eventually he negotiated an agreement in which he and his followers were classified as prisoners of war. When Geronimo surrendered, he had a band of 38 people with him, of mostly women and children. With 5,000 U.S. soldiers, and relentless pursuit. Quote, nationalism, in my opinion, is nothing more than an idealistic rationalization for militarism and aggression. Unquote, Albert Einstein. <laughs>